Yeah, good evening. As you heard already, I'm Dietmar Wenske. Um, I was born and grew up in Germany. My parents immigrated in 1964. I studied in South Africa. I ended up in the Arms Corps Denel environment. And I must say, whatever you think politically, I enjoyed the technology work, as they say. All right. So that is where I come from. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you for that introduction, Gerard. Um, I, I just want to do a little introduction here where I say, why am I the one talking to you today? Well, I don't have to make any apologies because I was asked to do it. Uh, and secondly, um, I, I got that experience in Armscore where we worked on multidisciplinary complex systems. We were pretty young, but even our superiors did in part not know much more than we did. So it, it worked very well. It was a learning curve that was very steep, but enjoyed it very much. 15 years, as you heard already. But over the last 25 years, I've been exposed to many, many companies. And I literally, as a one-man band, worked from Finland to Turkey and from um, you know, Cyprus to the United States. And you say that's impossible um, because all you do today is there are two things you can really exchange very quickly globally. And the one is money and the other one is knowledge. Now, for whatever reason, uh, people thought my contribution worth the money. And, uh, you know, they, they want to hear you. They, they, they do everything maybe halfway. And then sometimes you're lucky they ask you again, you know. Um, but I'm not a consultant. Not at all. I don't see myself as a consultant. I'm a facilitator in a process to find a solution. And when I go into these companies and there are hospitals, there are banks, I just feel more comfortable in an engineering environment. Then um, I find with my particular background, because I was in, in senior management over time as well in the Arms Corps environment, that there is a lot of holistic practice and system engineering, no, let's call it system thinking in many fields. And actually, we have to get all that together. So what's so special about system engineering? Well, I think on the one hand, um, it gives us a bigger picture. We can see wider. We all start off as specialists. I did aerodynamics, and I always wanted to be a specialist in subsonic aerodynamics, specializing on the inlet of jet engine inlets. I mean, how narrow is that, you know? But that's what I wanted to do. Well, except in my final year and at the University of Stellenbosch, I never ever saw anything like that in practice. Um, but that was the bigger picture. Also, the integration of form, fit, and function. Um, I was exposed to that very, very early because we also did reverse engineering, and you reverse engineer something, and it doesn't work the way it works as the original does. You know, things like that. Um, but I think system engineering also forces us to ask the right questions. And there are bigger questions than the detail, depending on which level of the systems hierarchy you're working at. And I will not here um, elucidate system engineering methodologies except one or two references to it in a moment. Um, because I think you probably know a lot more about it in detail now than I do. Um, but I think I've, I've learned quite a bit, and I want to go there with you. Um, 
systems engineering is really in itself a system. And I put these little boxes there because we engineering types learn perfectly well in boxes. And the problem with us is not the boxes and drawing the flow diagram. The problem is the, the arrows. And it's the interfaces there and the problems that arise between the arrows. But I just wanted to show that, let me go through this quickly here, if this orange one is the boundaries of system engineering, there's a lot inside there. And I highlighted another two there, and I called them, um, I'll get to it in a moment, but um, this blue one, say, is leadership, and the green one here is innovation, and there are lots of other yuckles in there as well. But I'm going to focus on that, and I'll explain to you a little bit later. But of course, even systems engineering has to fit in a bigger picture. It's not just one topic on its own. It has to be practiced within a certain context, in a certain culture, on a certain project. Um, and, uh, you know, in the end, the context could be very, very large. And I'll, I'll explain one or two things in a moment. So I highlight these three, innovation, leadership, and system engineering, and how they work together, because if I think of my traveling, and I've worked, as I said, in banks, in hospitals, in manufacturing industries, in um, uh, glass-blowing facilities, in, in the Czech Republic, in all sorts of places, and I see that this contextual system within which all this takes place has a lot to do with the culture of the people, has a lot to do with the mindset of the people. There are all sorts of things that I call soft stuff as a typical engineer, you know, in there. So why this combination? Well, I took those three because I thought they are the main ones. But they are very important for competitiveness in a global context. So I thought to give you the bigger picture, I'm going to talk a little bit about systems, uh, systems engineering, a little bit about how that maybe interfaces with program management, the art of creative thinking, because we've got to be fit for the current challenge, and we've got to be uh, ensuring that what we're doing today is fit for the future. I mean, almost all of you are probably involved in projects that are going to be applied in the future. You're just doing the front work at the moment. And then about leadership. And I'll give you practical examples. Now we're in the Cape. We know the usual winters here consist of very small drops of rain over a long period of time, and you don't even need an umbrella but you get wet. And that's what I want you to do here tonight. I want you to get wet in the sense that, please, not as typical engineers, focus on a particular sentence or thing I say, but always see it in context of what I'm trying to get across in a bigger picture and make sure you get wet. You got it. You may smile. Good. Um, so the basics, I think, can systems engineering be perfectly, uniquely, unambiguously described for every parameter, characteristic, interface, or situation? And the answer probably is no. In my experience, it is no. There are always surprises. Although we understand a lot, we never understand the picture completely. And then we get the surprises. And I'm going to talk about that a little later as well. Now, this is the basics. We all know that here, I'm sure. But I think the, the most important part is the next one, where say systems must be managed in terms of a certain level in a hierarchy, then also what type of system are we talking about, 
And the other one is also in which phase of the life cycle they currently are. Because the treatment of system thinking, systems engineering, is slightly different within that space of system engineering practice. And, and bear with me when I just throw all these things at you. But you see, I give a course at a German university, postgraduate, where I'm the only speaker for six days, from eight to five. And it's rough for me, and it's rough for the students. No doubt about it. But I can easily fall into this mode. So when I see your eyes toppling over, I know it's too much. All right. We in our days, now I sound like a Rhodesian, you know. I'm not Rhodesian. Um, we in our days, the Wenwees. Um, but I come from a time at Arms Corps where there was a new department started called Systems Engineering. And I was the second person there that was employed there, which eventually was 320 people. So it was big. Systems Engineering was taken very seriously at the time. We started off with US military specs. And those of you who are old enough, you know, some of you, know all the courses we had to go through with Atsparius. And I see he's still in the field. All right? I don't know exactly what he does these days then in detail, but we learned there with, um, I would almost say not in a digital way, but potlot and papir way, you know, with paper and pencil to write specs and be very, very careful of what we write there and how we interpret a user requirement in terms of technical specifications. And that is the very first lesson I learned as a young man, that the language that our users were speaking in was not the language I understood. And there were already the biggest mismatches right there. And if I think of many of you who are in SKA, and I've read up a little bit on that, and I'm sure you work with a lot of scientists, astronomers, and people who probably have a different take on user requirements than what you have, if you're technical. Um, anyway, you know all these things, and I think it was due to him that South Africa started RSA Millspecs. I don't even know if they still exist. When I speak to my local students, and I teach at the University of Joburg, at the Postgraduate Engineering Management School, and at Pretoria University in the Graduate School for Technology Management, when I speak to them, and they are still working in Arms Corps, they don't even know system engineering exists. Are there any from Arms Corps here? No. It's, it's disappeared. It's gone. I can't believe it, actually. But anyway, that's what happened. That's the past. And we had uh, systems hierarchically structured, and I tried to convert this uh, thing that we had that was, of course, based on military hardware and looked at electric transportation, where you look at the very lowest uh, system level at materials, then maybe a simple component from those materials, uh, maybe some other assembly, then to some or other um, a larger product, let's say the electric motors in an electrically driven car like a Tesla, and so on. And you get things when you go higher up, infrastructure, roads, and so on. Maybe one day, imagine if driverless cars really come into being, and I personally am convinced it'll happen, and unless I die tomorrow, I think it'll be in my lifetime. It'll be quick. It'll be very quick. Um, where does an insurance company go when your cars don't have accidents anymore? 
That's an interesting one, huh? Uh, the rules of the roads will change. That's at the very highest level, sorry. Okay, so these were the classical level ones that we worked on. I've explained it, and we're not going to go there. But I called it applicable systems engineering because the American mill specs, they really make um, space for everything. Everything they ever thought of in defense and aerospace in the United States in the 60s is in those mill specs. And what is nice is if you take that as a template and you look at every single point there and you consciously think about that point and is it applicable or is it not applicable? Because go, don't go into um, um, biological warfare and chemical warfare if that's what you're not going to do. So don't even consider those points. They're irrelevant. So apply it to your uh, uh, system that you're working on. Then in Germany, when I take my German students, because we do take an afternoon off once, and we go to a company which um, practices some form of, let's say, engineering management. And I'll tell you a couple of things about German companies. We, are there Germans here? Look, I'm as German as the next guy, but... They don't know the word system engineering. I've never met a company. But here was a company. Klaas is an agricultural machinery company. They are based in many places in Germany, but their head office, I think, is near the Bodensee, and that's where we go. And they build these rather complex systems, and there's an enormous amount of electronics and GPS. They do their plowing. They do their, what do you call that, mowing, harvesting, according to GPS tracks, you know. Uh, but these things get developed in a system engineering process which, when they showed it to me, looks remarkably similar to what we developed in the very, very early 80s, late 70s at Arms Corps. And they came there by a completely different route. And that was interesting to me, and their stuff really works. And it's exciting to see how they work, even as a team, in design and development, because they design and develop these things themselves. I also had a lot to do with Krasma 5 Ekman. Amongst other things, they built the Leopard tank. They don't do system engineering. They don't have that. They have different departments. They don't talk to each other like anywhere else, you know, and they call them divisions, which is a word I banned out of my organizations wherever I went. That word is already very negative. Um, and there, they build these complex systems uh, remarkably well after all it's it's quality stuff but they do not have an an, an obvious se process they don't follow it consciously they've got so many specialists working on tiny detail detail you have no idea and i saw that later in mercedes i'll get back to that one and this one is mercedes now i like mercedes okay and i think it's top quality but here is the big, big secret. They tinker everything together. They have four and a half thousand individual designers only in the, um, what do you call that, sedan, um, ordinary car. What do you call it, saloon car? That's also not the right, you know, uh, an ordinary car, not a truck, not a delivery van. Four and a half thousand people. I met persons there who are highly qualified and they specialized in windscreen wiper motors for the last eight years. And that's all they ever do. But the big thing is not that they are such specialists in this one thing. That could be good. 
but they never meet to discuss the interfaces and they have lots of problems. That's why it takes them, typically they tell me, between six and seven years to develop a new model. And so I read somewhere that Lexus takes three to three and a half years to, and they look me in the face and they say, but a Lexus is not a Mercedes. I said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and it hasn't got a star. I said, for how long do you think people will still wait for and pay for a star? Days are changing. Be careful. But of course, Mercedes is still a brand that everybody recognizes. The point I just want to make is they too don't do system engineering. I spoke to their development people and they said that for the first one and a half years, every large part of the car, like the gearbox, like the uh, electronics, the suspension, the motor, uh, the engine, the um, body, they all work in isolation. And manufacturing isn't even asked until the thing is integrated. And then manufacturing says, but we can't build this. You know, we need this, that and the other. And they tweak and they tinker and they carry on. And then you get skunk works, the famous skunk works, where people do not consciously follow an SE process, but they get things done. And they get things done, if you think of Lockheed, Starfighter F-104, Hercules aircraft, if you think, you know, the Hercules um, four-prop job transport aircraft. If you think of, what else did Lockheed do? The U-2. Um, these amazing, and the what? The Blackbird. Yeah, exactly. So they had very, very complex, multidisciplinary projects. They did them in a relatively short time. Of course, is money, if money is not an object, um, and you've got a very strategic goal, and everybody pulls together, that's good, but I'll tell you that that's not an excuse for... And then, of course, you get these guys, all right? Any one of you who's read um, Elon Musk's uh, book that is quite popular in the bookshops at the moment? Nobody. I can't believe it. And I can't believe it for that reason, that a guy like that is the ideal system engineer. Except he doesn't call himself that. He probably doesn't even know the term. He probably doesn't care a hoot about it either. But they are a combination of this and this. But they get things done relatively quickly. And I'll go there in a, in a moment as well. But so we got these methodologies, wonderful, as good as it gets, but we still get failures. One thing I discovered in my what I now would call, I'm a generalist in having specialized in the process of finding the cause of a problem. Almost always it is a management problem. Almost always. The technical guys know what they have to do. But there are structures, there's bureaucracy, there's this, that and the other that prevents it. And a good examples, well, bad examples in a way, are the Challenger accident of, was it 1982? You remember, you all remember that picture if you were, you probably even remember where you saw it. And what was it in the end? Yes, technically it was an O-ring that couldn't take the low temperature in Florida on that particular launch morning. But the actual problem was the management. Because the guys who knew reported it up and it got diluted and diluted and diluted. So when it came to the guy who had to say go, no go for launch, he didn't even know there was a problem. And he pressed the button, and it went. Um, we had something in the G5 where something very simple. The things, 
uh, was already operational, it was working, it had done all the qualifications, it was in service with the user. And suddenly we get a lot of explosions of the projectile, or detonations rather, just after, just after launch. But the launch is 900 meters per second in about 18 milliseconds. So the acceleration is something else. Now in an electronic fuse like this, this is a, an aluminium thing on top. Oh, no, no, it's not aluminium on the electronic one. I can't remember if it's epoxy. But the point is this. There was a two-component foam inside there that had to keep the electronic pieces um, so that they wouldn't move. Because this thing didn't just accelerate to 900 meters per second in a short time. It also rotated to, if I remember the number correctly, something like 15,000 or 18,000 RPM in that time. All right. So the stuff in the fuse couldn't move around. I mean, and the foam was meant to keep it there. And we had these detonations. Investigation. Is it the gun? Is it the charges? Is it the fuse? Everybody says, not my product. We tested it, it was verified, qualified, not our, not our problem. Then we went to the fuse manufacturer, it's not his problem either because he did exactly everything as he always did, except he had a new supplier of this foam. And the one component he couldn't get anymore, so he substituted another component which had apparently the same spec sheet, but when you put it together, the formation of the cells were uh, connected. The cells were connected. While in the previous foam, the cells were not connected. And the difference under that acceleration was the collapse of the fuse during launch. It took us months to find that out. So I'm just saying we get with, and, and we think at the time we had a very good process. And I mean, we went through qualification and all those things. Anti-tank weapon. It was designed, developed, industrialized, and went to production. Just the first couple of production models were demonstrated to all the generals. I was at Prisca myself when it happened, and five out of five failed right in front of the launch. Wow. Now that was embarrassment, you know, because all the generals, and they paid millions for this, you know, out of their budget anyway. And in the end, I tell you where the problem was. The handover from design and development where system engineering took place to production was done. Here are the drawings. Here are all the written up processes. We push it through the letterbox in the door and we've proven that we can do it and it's right and it's working. Now you carry on. And the handover was just so poorly done that it manifested in small little technical errors that accumulated, but five out of five is dramatic. So we had to redo it. Long story. A-class Mercedes, who is old enough to know that they would topple over at a road test like that in front of journalists. Very embarrassing. Now Mercedes knew that all along. They pulled the anti-stabilization thing there, or stabilization thing, out of the car because it was too expensive. And that's what happened. So Mercedes hasn't got a formal system engineering process, but they also get hit, okay? And those are the points I wanted to make here. Almost took the wine. You're still awake. You're still okay. Now, 
Can systems engineering be done solely by means of models or processes or mind maps or whatever we want to call this thing? And I just went to Google and I said, show me some images of processes for system engineering. And I got all these. At the, I mean, this is just one screenshot. There are hundreds of these things. And they are probably similar if you look closely. But in the end, we're always trying to find the boxes and the recipes according to which we can work. We all like that. So I want to uh, say system engineering processes are a little bit by, like maps. And maps don't work in today's world. And you might think, well, that's a bit of a cheek. But I think system engineering methodologies are like recipes. It requires more than the ingredients to be a great cook. And what these ingredients, uh, what these special attributes are, is difficult. So I compare it to a map. A map is a flat depiction of the surface of a sphere. We all agree with that. And it's very difficult to do that. We got various mapping um, instruments. But I make the claim maps are not impartial. Maps are inaccurate. They're usually not current. And maps will not get you wherever you actually wanted to go. Look at this map. This is a map that the Russians produced during the Cold War to show very clearly these guys, whoopsie, these guys are a lot bigger than North America. Europe is a puny little nothing. And that map is a particular projection. And I think we do systems engineering in a similar way. What is the project? What's the desired outcome? What is our cultural context? Here it's Cold War. That's something completely different. But it's not that completely different. Sometimes in our companies we have cultural law, uh, 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 wars as well. Um, and how does the leader of the team see it? I want to give you another example very quickly. MacArthur's is apparently a recognized Australian mapping where Australia is in the center of this map, you know? And very cleverly, North America is now in the east, <laughs> okay? And, and uh, we are in the west, though. But note, Australia is also in the west. All right, nice, very nice. You see, we, we are also there. <laughs> Should have made it in the form of a rugby ball. When I was in South Korea, I found this map. The spots are the places where I've worked already. That's just a little brag thing on the side, okay? But what I found interesting when I bought the map there, it's very unusual because Korea is in the center. Who would have thought that? But it's a Korean map. So we are biased. We are not impartial even as engineers on our projects. They're not accurate because the only true representation of a geography can only be on a scale of one to one. Now you say to me, but that's pointless. It is indeed pointless, as Lewis Carroll already recognized when he said, we actually made a map of the country on the scale of a mile for a mile. Have you used it much? It has never been spread out yet, mein Herr. The farmers objected. They said it would cover the whole country and shut out the sunlight. So now we use the country itself as its own map, and I assure you, it does nearly as well. <laughs> surprise, surprise, the real world um, will actually do a lot of system engineering for you. And I combined the other two because it's difficult to apply maps like that. I mean, I once, when we moved to Pretoria from Stellenbosch, and my wife's a Boerlander, for them, 
The world stops at the Hex River Valley. So going to Pretoria was a big deal. Now she had to take the children to the German school, and she somehow got onto Zambezi Drive. I don't know if you know the place. And she was totally lost. She couldn't even find home anymore. Now she's got a map. And she phones me from what they used to call a ticky box. And she phones me crying because she's completely lost. She's in Pretoria, but she has no clue where home is. Okay? But she's got her map. I said, what is the nearest road sign? Anyway, she describes it to me, and it comes down to this. I can't understand that she cannot pinpoint her position exactly because she gives me two roads, so that's a unique point there. you know. And I said, now you must go left or right or whatever it was. And it took me a while to find out she's got the map the wrong way around. How must I know that? I said, the map is always north, it's always north. She says, how must I know that? She's not a map reader. She's an intelligent woman, but maps are not her thing. All right? And Einstein said it very nicely. In theory, there is no difference between theory and practice. But in practice, there is. And we all know that. We all know that. And when it comes, it comes to um, currency, you buy a new laptop, you get a one-year guarantee, but the thing's obsolete as you walk out of the shop. Isn't it? So there are things like that I, I want to, you to be conscious of. And our SE models, how fancy it might be, doesn't tell you the whole story. In a steady-state world, it might still work. But we are now living in a time of exponentialism. Everything is exponential. Everything. In terms of speed, in terms of complexity, in terms of globalization, uh, whatever. And everything is very fast. So we already had a resistance in Arms Corps at the time that they said system engineering is a waste of time. Of course, we who were deeply involved with that didn't think so. We thought we made a contribution. But everybody, not everybody, many people around us saw us as total waste of time. And maybe that feeling prevailed after many of the more senior guys or people who drove that thing left. All right? Now, it surely didn't go down because of me, but... There were lots of me's there that left at that time or were given the order to march. There's maybe one exception, people, one exception. And I can't do this Neville Stokes stuff anymore. I still recognize it halfway, but I can't do it anymore. I don't fool myself. But mathematics could possibly do it. If you could formalize equations where you have system engineering principles in there. And I always thought that's impossible. But I now, you can read this faster than I can talk about it, but I now have a PhD student. He is an Indian guy from India originally, working in uh, California, near San Francisco. And in my travels, I also collect potential PhD students for UP and UJ, uh, and for the graduate schools there, or postgraduate schools. And I got this guy, and he is busy with a thesis that I thought would be impossible on trying to put system engineering principles with soft stuff like harmony, culture, all these words that I thought you cannot possibly mathematize. And he's got them. He works with uh, determinants. Uh, it is amazing. When I read his stuff, I admit I do not always understand what he is saying. But 
Then I hear him articulated at a conference or a PhD colloquium where he must explain what he is doing. And it drops like scales of my eyes. And everybody in the room, and there are some real prima donna professors there, they are amazed. They are ha, you know. And, and one day you'll hear of him. Pravir Malik is his name. Pravir Malik. But anyway, um, examples I want to give you here is mathematics can go a long way. The Boeing 777, and I'm a big Boeing fan, not an Airbus fan, for other reasons though. The Boeing 777 was the first commercial aircraft that was built and designed completely on the computer and through CAD in the machine shop to make the parts. They put them all together and it flew as predicted. Wow. What does the Mercedes guy say to me? Yeah, but the S-Class is much more complex. I say, oh, really? <laughs> That's how far the pride is. Landing on a rotating comment, comet is quite a thing. And mathematics modeled the reality, the real world, better than any map could, if, if you see what I'm trying to get at. And also the rendezvous with Pluto at that speed, and it takes all those photographs, high resolution, that it takes half a year to just send them back, But it's a couple of billion miles away. And I believe they didn't even know the exact orbit of Pluto when they launched. They had to calculate it as they were flying and got better and better uh, resolution pictures. Anyway, we're, we're still on the SE, just like, guys, when did I start? Five minutes ago. <laughs> okay. I think... If you cannot create a map, in other words, an SE methodology very clearly, because it's terra incognita, especially if I'm thinking of things like the SKA or the uh, modular pebble, uh, pebble bed reactor thing, uh, because nobody has done it before, then maybe you need navigational skills for getting there. Rather, now, don't, don't hear me wrong now. I'm not saying we mustn't plan. I don't say we mustn't use specs. I don't say we mustn't have a methodology that is uh, rational and reasonable. We must have all that. But there must somewhere be, in the leadership of that team, be somebody who can navigate almost by the stars. Now, that's a difficult thing for engineers to accept. I understand that. I was there too. But that's the problem. Um, maybe we must, must try more of that. So we require more of an orientation aid, some kind of features that go together, maybe transitions, explanations, integration mechanisms. Believe me, I don't know myself what I'm saying or trying to convey here, except it's not just the structured stuff. Why do the Elon Musk get it right when NASA, who is steeped in the stuff of systems engineering, takes so long and it's so expensive and they have as many failures as little old SpaceX, which is only how many years old? Four or five, you know? Amazing. Um, today's SE involves traveling in largely uncharted territory, especially these big projects. By the way, I always thought there were seven of these meerkats. I only count six. Is that the angle of the photo? Okay, angle. Oh yeah, let me just go back here. Um, Tesla Automotive was not, the objective was not to build an electric car. The objective was transportation and mobility of individuals is getting more and more complex, difficult, the cities are overcrowded. Let us start on a system 
that will do away with fossil fuels, uh, fuels with congestion, with um, uh, pollution and all that stuff. So this would be a completely new way of looking at mobility and transportation of people. Uh, Meerkat is, from what I read, a very different way of looking at the heavens in terms of its size and resolution and complexity and so on. SpaceX too. If you read that book by Elon Musk, you find out that when he had this dream of going to Mars, which drove him all the way when he wasn't working on Tesla, he's, he went to the Russians and he wanted to buy boosters, just boosters. And they gave him a price tag. And he had, I don't remember the numbers now, but say he had $500,000 and they wanted $2 million. And he says, you must be kidding. What's the most expensive part on this thing? Uh, so and so and so. He had experts from NASA there with him who believed in his dream and how to do it. And these guys says, you know what? $2 million, forget the whole thing. We do it ourselves. And the Russians laughed. Okay? And they went and they did it themselves. But the people that got, they got together were... But in any language, mavericks, absolute mavericks, like the people you see in some of these Google and eBay companies working there, they're half crazy, but they work like crazy as well, and they get things done. They have their failures, but they get things done. How do they do it? There's something in there that we must also learn. Um, On-demand industries like Uber, Airbnb, and so on, they are doing things, not in engineering, but using systems thinking, which gets them somewhere very fast. What is it that they are doing? Um, a good old Elon was, of course, also involved in PayPal. That's where he made his first money. And he started because he looked at banks and financial transactions, and he says, what a BS method they are all using. There must be something better. Hello. And he did. And... That is how he looks at things if you look at Tesla, SpaceX, and PayPal. And even, can one do that? But if you read books by Seth Godin, um, the nature of work and how we work and what we do has already changed dramatically and will change even more. Many of you might already work at home on a big project because you can't design and build nuclear power stations of SKA installations in isolation that you can't do, but you could do a lot at home. All right. So what, what do we need? We've seen already re-engineering and restructuring, ticking the boxes is not going to do it alone. It's necessary, but not sufficient to use a mathematical terminology there. Maybe we must use signposts. I end off every class at my, with the students, and you've got the time to do stuff like that. Let's, let's build some signposts. What is it that we could be doing that is not in the formalized boxes that everybody knows out of textbooks? Um, make use of a compass. Pull yourself forward by means of an anchor. I once read in a book that the original idea of an anchor was not to hold the ship in a place, but to throw it forward and then pull yourself towards that point. And that's what we must do in system engineering. Excuse all the metaphors. I know it's easy to say that from a PowerPoint than to do it. But that's what we've got to look for. So, now let's switch gears. We're not even halfway. Is that okay? You're, st you're still all right. If you need refills, you can do that.
Innovation is one of those things, and I'm going to go very quickly through this, otherwise we're going to be here too long. It's really, what's innovation? The ability to see connections, spot opportunities, and take advantage. That defines me today. 25 years ago, when I started off, I was a pretty um, structured, shaped, formed engineer with a lot of learning and in a highly structured environment of engineering. And it was great what I learned there. But when I went out there on my own, I had to think of new things. What can I actually do? Because I didn't want to work necessarily in a defense industry. But there were certain gifts I thought I had, and I can see connections in places you might not, or opportunities, and I'll walk in there. I'll walk in there because I'm not scared anymore to walk into something I've never done before. And don't hear me wrong here either. I don't do it with arrogance. I do it with humility. And something where I think I will not be able to do it, I say no. I don't care how much money they offer me, I say no. Or if it's against my values, that's another thing, of course. So... So what is innovation? Is it a process? Is it a product? Is it something in the product? We're going to get there. We're going to go there very quickly. It's a new idea, maybe original, more effective, categorically different, asking the right questions and maybe coming up with some answers, getting a radically better solution or a radically more effective process. But people are scared of radical changes. Oh, can't do that. And I understand that. In an explosive factory or on the assembly line, you can't do that. But you're not all working there. Creative destruction of the current situation. In Germany, Uber is banned. Because the taxi drivers got a very, very strong union. And they will kill it. But they will not kill it forever. It's impossible. Uber will come. Like it or not. So, you know, even... Our retirement job as a taxi driver in Cape Town is going to be out the window. It's not going to work because Uber is still allowed in South Africa. But that's just one part. A travel bureau today. You remember the days uh, 20 years ago? You booked everything through your favorite travel bureau. I haven't seen a travel bureau from the inside now for years. I never, ever go there. I think maybe one day when I'm in an old age home and I want to go on this cruise and I can't remember how it all works, then maybe I'll go to the travel bureau entrepreneurial way of looking at things and looking at new possibilities and I'm going to give you some examples of people who do this and I, this is all words I know but I really want to share examples with you so read this quickly um, it's not just about new products and so on technology is often a trigger for an innovation but cooperation across disciplines often aids innovation and I just want to give you one or two points the Glick company they develop handguns. And I remember from my younger days there in Armsco, I was exposed to them a little bit, not much because I was never into handguns. And they wanted to develop a gun that works instead of steel, that works with plastics. And everybody, the old men in the game, said it can't be done. It's impossible. So they got people on board, a lawyer, and somebody else that is totally unrelated to engineering, and they put them into the team to develop something. And they came up with ideas that all the engineers knew wouldn't work. And they tried this and they tried that, and hey, it did work. 
I experienced it when I went to Bodensee Geräte. At the, they are a sort of a Kentron type of company. And at that time, I was 34 or 35. The guy opposite me had white hair. And um, we were talking about things, and I sort of suggested, uh, what do you think? If we do this or that technically, do you think it would work? And he says, no, it's definitely not going to work. We tried that 20 years ago. It doesn't work. What I didn't tell him is that that's what we had done in our ignorance, and it worked. And why did it work? Materials were different over these 20 years. Processes were different. And we had a different take on what could be done and what couldn't be done. We didn't have the paradigm. We didn't have the baggage. And that made a big difference. I was once invited. Um, they were looking for somebody, and I don't know why they picked on me. But they said, as a system engineer, Barclays Bank was looking for how is system engineering done at Kentron. Actually, I think it was Armscore at that time, system engineering. And so I go to Joburg, I go to Barclays, and I thought to myself, what does a bank want to do with that? They want to see what the processes are, and I just had to tell them the processes we go through, and they sit there and they take out of that and translate it into their own environment to help them to produce new products. I was astounded that it could be done that way. And it was a learning experience for me. And then at, at, at this company, you know, I, gi I give these PowerPoint uh, things, and one day in Pretoria there somebody says, we want you to be the, the uh, general manager of a new startup company we want to start. I said, I'm not in that game. They said, well, you've just told us how to do it. Um, we want you now to do it. And then the price was right, and I committed for a year. And I, and I inherited three people. The one lady was 20. She had so much iron on her tongue, in her eyebrow, in her face, that I was wondering how she ever would get through, uh, you know, through the uh, airport thing. And we had another guy who also looked very weird. But I can tell you what, they knew their stuff. Absolutely incredible. They knew their stuff. I was like the boss in Dilbert who hasn't got a clue because this was all digital stuff, new B2B stuff. They used abbreviations I'd never heard in my life before, and I was now their boss. But with the help of those two, we grew to about 12 people after a year, and we had a, a sorry, we were 20 people, and we had a turnover of 12 million after a year. And I tell you, I learned a lot from these young people. Not in terms of their expertise and their skill. I never learned that. But the way they went about it, what they produced, how they put a B2B thing which was brand new then, together, and it's just amazing. And I can give you other stories from Switzerland in this line too. But it would be too much. I want to come to the point of all this, and that's really the end. Huh? Breakthroughs often come from unexpected corners by means of paradigm shifts. This guy was a meteorologist, and he had the cheek to talk at a geological conference in 1956, I think it was, and he came up with this idea of tectonic plates. And the geologists there cried, foul, stupid, that's not how we look at things, it cannot be true, and who are you anyway? You're not even a geologist. True. And it is one of the shortest paradigm shift times ever in a science because it only took to 1960 when everyone in geology accepted tectonic plate movement. Everybody. So that was very quick.
He's circled a little bit longer. I think it's just one M here. Semmel is German for a roll. Uh, I think that was my misprint there. Uh, Ignaz Semmelweis, he was a Hungarian working in an Australian hospital, and he noticed that when he treated, um, rather not treated, when he caught babies in the midwifery section, what do you call that section where they have the babies? Mid yeah, maternity. Maternity section. Um, doctors in those days did not wash their hands between patients because they did not yet know about bacteria. That's 19, uh, 1861. So they didn't know about things like that. And uh, the white vest of a doctor comes from that time where they wiped their hands off when they moved from patient to patient just to have clean fingers, but they didn't think of what they were carrying around. And he had this bright idea, maybe because the people die because we come from the mortuary and now we catch babies. Because the doctors had a very high um, a death rate of children and mothers, but the midwives none at all, or very little. And he said, where's the difference? So he introduced hand washing. It took years for the medical profession to accept that. Years. He, uh, in the end, was kicked out of the hospital. He started a new one somewhere else. He was kicked out there too because his reputation was now there on the line. And he died in a mental home. In Budapest okay sad and this guy came up with a lot of ideas that were not always accepted and even his gravitational wave thing is only recently now been proven that it was correct but I mean he formulated the relativity theory and everything that goes with it was it in the 20s or 30s all right so there's really long ago paradigm shifts are very difficult Innovation, my, in my opinion, and it comes close to system engineering, is about thinking and evaluating what you're thinking and doing it and then evaluating it again and thinking and doing and so on. And it's not only about technology or technical knowledge. It's much bigger than that. This is a long story here, but I think innovation is an integrated part of a design. Isn't that what system engineering is? System engineering in a bigger context includes all these things. Community, education, you are educators too. Um, national culture, other things, stakeholders that are at different levels and so on. But let me get there quickly. Innovation can be in a different context. When you think of innovation and I think of innovation, we might have completely different ideas if we just think of something. It's definitely at different levels. If you have an innovation at transistor level or at uh, in circuitry or something and another one has a new method of getting something to a comet or to Pluto those are worlds apart and yet they can all be innovative different cultures see innovation differently if you go into a national culture where innovation is seen as absolutely disruptive and disrespectful and I don't know what um, when I was in Japan two years ago I think it was I there was a guy who gave a keynote speech at a conference. And he was the big boss of Japanese Railway. And he proudly told us that every single person, and I don't remember how many million people work for that Japanese Railway thing, he said they go through retraining every single year. Doesn't matter if they work there for 40 years, if they do a low-level job or a high-level job, they all do retraining. But what happens is the training syllabus doesn't change. Wow, I think that's scary. What is nice is that the trains are all on time. 
They have a national average of delay of something like 77 seconds per year on the Shinkansen trains. They are so punctual, it is sickening to see it. It's absolutely amazing. But other things there too. Different systems. In some systems, it would be very important. Say you have new cooking pots that now take advantage of um, induction heating. Now, that's also a system. There's a little bit of system engineering, but it's pretty quick. Okay? Um, and there could be systems of the economy, if you like. There could be systems in how you do a surgical process. And there are different paradigms. And I want to show you examples here too. KWV here in the Cape. When it was taken over by that Dr. Barnard, who went to the KWV, they asked him, what do you know about winemaking? He said, just enough to appreciate drinking it. And he changed that whole team of 5,000 co-op farmers into an international company of many sections. He did that. But the one thing that really impressed me there is they had an illiterate uh, guy who worked in the bottling plant and he was cleaning. And the, the clever guys were wondering how they could benchmark their um, filling uh, line, what do you call those things, bottling lines, because the KWV was only eighth according to the sort of the benchmark of other companies. And this guy who had no real management, he knew nothing about things like that. He heard about this and he said, well, oh, sorry, the benchmark was about changing from red wine to white wine. How quickly can you do it? Now I remember, that's how it was. And this guy says, but, but don't stop the line. Just push the white wine through until the quality is of such a degree that all this mixed stuff, it just cleans it. You bottle it without labels? He didn't articulate it so well because he had, a, he had an objective. He said, and then you give it to the staff. <laughs> you know, the stuff that you use to clean the pipes with. You give it to the staff. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. And they went overnight from 8th to 1st <laughs> because they use the wine as the cleaning agent for their filters and so on. And, and that's brilliant. He didn't go to system engineering courses or thinking courses or anything, but he knew what he wanted. <laughs> um, another thing we had, and I mentioned already the engineers and the men in uniform, think differently about the utilization of a product. I, uh, when I thought about you guys, you got engineers, and you probably work, I mean, I know nothing about your work, but you probably work with engineers and scientists. And do you speak the same language? I mentioned that already. And one day, because I have a medical business on the side as well, um, I wrote a paper called Changing the Paradigm. And I went to a medical conference in Minnesota. It was accepted. So I did my talk there. Um, how do we get from indication-based uh, to process-based for the medical guys? Because I believe, the little bit that I know about that, there are 45,000 diseases that can affect you and me. And you cannot tell me, since I was a student and I still deal with students, that any doctor can remember off my heart 45,000 diseases indications. Impossible. Unless you're Dr. House. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. So if you change your paradigm to process-based, because what they say at the moment is you've got problem A, here's a solution X. Problem B, we have a solution Y. But if you could 
undergo a process where the body's own healing stuff is mobilized in such a way that it can solve its own problems, you don't need indication A, B, and C. Most of the time, the GPs are guessing. Sorry, I think so. All right. Let's try this and see if it works. That doesn't work for engineering. The fundamental requirements are thinking, asking the right questions. Do you see how similar all this is to system engineering? And execution is something that I picked up in Steve Jobs' biography. Because he says it doesn't matter how smart your design is, how beautiful it is, and the utility of it. If you cannot sell it, it is pointless. And that is true. That is very true. All right? Um, this guy, uh, I always forget his name, you know, the guy who invented the light bulb. Edison, Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison, um, he, he invented many things. The light bulb is the one we all know about. But he actually designed power stations. He actually designed outlets for domestic houses and streetlights and everything. Because he says, now we can do all these things, but we don't have the infrastructure. So he was instrumental in getting the infrastructure there so that ordinary people can actually make use of this new phenomena of electricity that you can convey to places and there are no outlets. What's the point, you know? But, I mean, that, that was always uh, very impressive to me. Now we're talking for an hour already, my little gadget says here, not quite. Um, but the other thing in system engineering, and the smarter we are, the more difficult this one becomes. He says... Um, well, you, you probably read it already. People think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on. But that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that are there. To do that, that discernment uh, takes more than just engineering savvy. There's something else there. And one thing I also learned over, over the years now. I meet people that are streetwise and there are people who've got a lot of learning. And the streetwise guys are way ahead of me, way ahead of me in some of the things that they do and can get right. Um, to turn really interesting ideas and fledgling technologies into a profitable company that can continue to innovate for years requires a lot of discipline. So there, there is a contradiction. It's almost like an oxymoron. We want discipline, but we want free thinking. We want art. We want chaos. Um, in here it comes, I, I visited a company called Zappos in Las Vegas. They sell shoes over the internet. I mean, how mundane is that? But the stuff they do is amazing. You walk into that place and it strikes you immediately. It looks like a country club, but there's discipline. Employees employ themselves and each other and they kick each other out too. Because you either have the spirit to work there or you don't. All right? But there are a, a group of 2,000 people sitting in one building. They, they, they bought the old town hall in Las Vegas, which is not old at all. It's from the 70s, quite modern actually. They revamped it. What do they do now? They are building things for the community like you won't believe. They have a, a, a concept called collisions per square foot. Now what the heck is that, I thought, when I got in there. And they said that is how many people meetings do we have and meetings of minds in the company how many collisions per square foot that is a dimension they monitor in the company how much coffee do people drink with each other and some of them waste time but others exchange ideas 
and out of that they get new ideas. And it's not only about shoes, it's about all sorts of things. I think that distinguishes him too. And this is nothing new, what I'm saying to you. Because 500 years ago, this guy invented the future by asking questions. And here's the thing that I really find fascinating. He didn't have a single year of school. But he could read numbers. Not like some people we know in our political system. And he could handle mathematics. And he started from scratch on his own. He was inquisitive, he had great ideas, and he was a very keen observer. And he had this extra talent, as we all know, of painting and drawing. And uh, the technology for his innovative thinking wasn't available, but he already knew it was possible. And many of his inventions have, in fact, now been built. Um, he was, in a way, a genial, geni as in genius, innovative engineering scientist. He combined it. Now, that is systems engineering in a wider context. You with me? I think he was an architect of the possible and even the impossible for his time. For his time. Then we have guys like this guy. He hypothesized that the sun was the center of the universe and not the earth. He got into trouble with that. Copernicus started a new cosmology, and the innovation was a completely new perspective. He started a Weltbild revolution. That's a nice word for paradigm shift. All right? And you get this guy. He had all the education you could think of. But he also looked at nature. And he said, nature is a system of knowledge that is highly ordered and highly structured. And you can rely on it. It will always be the same. Okay? And he used the utility of mathematics in showing that. And he was probably the greatest scientist of all times, in my opinion. But he put down fundamentals upon each one of us is trained in that. Each one of us. And that's quite a long time ago. So look, look at these guys. What are the lessons here for us in systems engineering? He looked at the possible and the impossible. He looked from a clean sheet of observation. I think that was one of the advantages of our young team on the G5. The average age at that time was 29. 29. And we did something that the Europeans did between three nations in a tripatriot development thing, which cost millions, and 12 or 15 years later they cancelled the project on the FH70, I think it was called. Do you remember something like that, Andre? FH70. Um, he had no education bias. He didn't know what's possible, what's not possible. When I left university and I saw the stealth bomber on a picture for the first time, it contradicted everything I learned in aerodynamics. It couldn't possibly fly. But it does fly. And in fact, I've seen it already fly. So, you know, I got something wrong there. Or they're doing in a different methodology that they use to, to fly that thing. This guy, again, was meticulous in the observation. He had genius-level education, this guy. So it is a broad, broad spectrum. Um, you've probably read all this. So this is another thing that I feel is very important. I ask my students, and I've got over 100 in the class these days, who is passionate about what you do at work? No hand comes up. I find that a bit surprising. Because you don't 
goes through the pain of engineering in terms of the study effort and the years that you put in and then not enjoy it. But I don't get a hand up. And I haven't done it once or twice. I do it every year. And I get almost the same result every year. I find that disappointing because, I mean, I was as keen as anything. I did a five-year course at Stellenbosch and I wanted to scrap all the weekends and the holidays and get it done in four if we can, please. But they didn't allow it. And my wife, who I met there, said to me I was a sickeningly ideal student. <laughs> but the thing is, you must be passionate about what you want to do or what you're doing. Look at this guy. These are now more modern guys. When he said a computer in every home, IBM said... Rubbish. What are you going to do with a computer at home? Type shopping lists, play games, or what? We need 65 supercomputers per year in the world for volcanology, defense, and meteorology, or something like that. You know? And what his genius was, and his innovative system thinking, he wasn't thinking product so much as the digital connection of TV, music, entertainment, computers, mobile communication, etc. as one. And um, he, he handled that with innovative designs, unique products, complementary systems that work together. I don't have a Mac now because I'm a fan, although it says here raving fans, because the Apple customers are very different the, to the PC customers. There is passion behind paying a high price for something that you could buy cheaper, you know? But why has he got them? Because they can see the passion in him. They want to be part of this. It's that old thing of Simon Sinek. Maybe you've seen that TED talk of his where he says, um, you know, the passion must actually ooze out and what you want to achieve. The product is incidental. It's really incidental. It's a very good TED Talk, Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K, if you ever. <coughs> and, this, and this guy I find him fascinating. He's born in 71 in Pretoria. You probably know all those things. But he, um, he says he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. <laughs> and watch this guy. He will probably, even if he's 47 now, I think, if it takes 10 or 20 years to go to Mars, with him it'll probably be shorter. I have the suspicion from what I read about him, he'll be on that trip. doesn't matter what, he'll be on that trip. And that's why he says he wants to die on Mars but not on impact. But what did he do? He rethought financial transactions at PayPal. He worked at a bank, like Lehman, not a bank. What are these houses like Lehman Brothers, Goldman Sachs type of places? What do you call those guys? Embezzlers or what? Investment, <laughs> Investment bankers, yeah. Um, and he told them how they could make more money and they laughed it off. They said, we don't do it that way. He said, okay. He left. He started with a couple of other guys, Peter Thiel and a couple of other guys, and they started PayPal. Everybody laughed at them. It'll never work. Well, look at it today. Who hasn't got a PayPal account? Yeah, there's very few. Well, yours I understand. He got cheated, he told me. <laughs> He rethought mobility by starting the electric car revolution. Why is it not just the car? There are no um, uh, retailers out there that sell Tesla's cars. They always come from the factory. There's no maintenance except through Tesla directly. 
your software gets upgraded via the internet um, you know, regularly while the thing is parked in your garage. And if there's a problem, they come. And they have recharging stations, at least in the United States. You can travel now uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast with a Tesla and you will find refueling points all along. Okay? In Germany, you can drive already from Munich to Hamburg as well. That's remarkable. Because that is rethinking mobility, not building another car. You understand? They are in a bigger system in their thinking. Uh, rethinking energy, and he started Solar City. He said transportation, energy, um, and uh, there was something else, uh, probably the money thing, he said are the key things for human beings in the next couple of decades. Um, rethinking space, well, how long did it take them to get the first payload to the space station? Not very long. NASA would still be doing design drafts or something, you know. Um, and rethinking transportation with a Hyperloop project, which are really like the old, what do you call those old uh, pipe communication things with compressed air? But they want to use magnetic uh, levitation. According to him, it's all going to work. And if you read that book, you can't believe that a person can live like that. Of course, he was married three times, twice to the same girl. He's got five children. But um, he... he, he, he I mean, this is a nice anecdote. It's got nothing to do with anything, but it's very funny. I told my wife because I'm really impressed that there's an engineer's engineer here. He, he met a girl at university that he fancied. He took her to the sofa on the first meeting and he said to her, how much time must I invest that you be my girlfriend? How many hours? A week. <laughs> she fell for it too. Um, you know, and, uh, but they, they got divorced. Um, but uh, <laughs> she said, he is like he is, but it is difficult to live with a guy like that. He flies from one of these companies to the next. All the, not PayPal, that's not his anymore, but the others are all his. Anyway, you get it all in one person there. It's amazing. What do they do right? Well, they ask the right questions at a very high systems level. And that's maybe with SKA or whatever the big things are in South Africa at the moment. Thinking at a higher level, a higher level than simply products and subsystems. That's maybe where we work. We who are the guys who are the specialists on a particular area. But there's got to be some. Is there a super, super system engineer in the SKA, just for example, on a project like that? Is there somebody like that? Because you need somebody like that for the technical integrity. But anyway, these guys were relentless, persistent, diligent, passionate, ferocious. They're absolutely driven. In the church you would say they're demon-possessed. It's, it's that vision that they've got and the drive they have, the energy they have. Of course, they don't stay married very long. Yes. <laughs> so they have a big picture perspective and attention to detail to an extreme degree. I remember from Dr. Barnard, we do things at a very high level and he would walk in and do the calculations on the recoil of the G5 and he can still do it. I must admit to you, I don't think I would be able to do anything like that today because I haven't been in that field for so long now. Um, but they also mobilize teams of inspired, knowledgeable individuals to do the impossible. The guy he got on board for the Tesla car right in the beginning 
was a total amateur but a student of engineering, electrical engineering, who built a home-built electric car that still today holds the record for the biggest acceleration of an electric car. But the batteries only last seven minutes. But it was a beginning. And that's how they start working. Um, but they inspire people. And they change the world through this. We're almost done. Are we? Yes, I think so. Um, I know we're still on innovation. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sorry. Are you still okay? If not, I mean, this is not a school. You can leave any time. Huh? So um, I wouldn't be insulted. It is a bit long. But I just want to show you, innovation is a really big picture. Because the disciplines are politics, high technology, finances, trade, environment, blah, 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 blah. All this, okay? Let's take high technology. If you split that up into research, communication, project management, processes, systems, other things, all right? If you take one of those, and that I learned through my moving around in Europe and the United States, people do things differently in these different cultures. And then you still got the subculture of the company, all right? So, culture of learning, mentoring, coaching, facilitating. How does it work? In Germany, everybody sits like this, and they never smile. And when I say, make a joke, and nobody laughs, and I say, yeah, I know, German joke is no laughing matter, still nobody laughs, <laughs> you know? Um, there are certain ways of putting things across. Here in Germany, a guy comes up to me, and he stands right in front of me, and he says, you come from where? He says, what do you know? I said, well, we'll find out. Your boss thought to pay me a lot of money to talk to you for three days, so let's see. You know, afterwards he comes to me and he says, you know, Havinska, I'm, I'm astounded. I've never enjoyed a workshop so much, learned so much. And it's amazing if one considers where you come from. <laughs> I thought, is this now a compliment or a whack in the face? So I asked him. So he had to think about it and he said, now consider it a compliment. I said, okay, great. Anyway, the, the culture is very different, you know, and also the political systems. And if you look at that, there's a national culture, an industry culture, a company. I was always amazed that in the Mediterranean areas, if I work there, the time doesn't seem to matter. It's a bit like Africa, you know, GMT plus two hours plus any time. So I found that always a bit erratic there, but it, it happens. And then, of course, we look at the content of the innovation, the big picture, the strategy, the vision, the leadership, asking the right, all those things. It's an enormously big picture. And this is why I felt when I, when I was asked by Gerard, would I be able to do this, I can't talk about system engineering alone because it's just a tiny little piece in the very big picture here. Um, but it needs a paradigm shift to see that. Um, these things, of course, incorporate thousands of innovations in terms of subsystems, sub-subsystems, products, materials, and whatnot. It is so, we know. Um, but look how these innovations have gone into fashion and out of fashion. Morse code, wide application, but time limited. Who still knows how to do Morse code? Really, you still know it? Very well done, good. Must be a pilot or a mariner or a radio hammer, huh? Uh, valves and transistors, now you can date me very easily. I went to tech first and I did electrical engineering and all I did is valves. Transistor was a big thing, wow, you know? Um, but 
It's an electronic application everywhere, but it was time limited in terms of the, the, the valves. It's coming back with Marantz and those things, but it's not. Steel making is very industry specific, but it's time unlimited. There will always be a requirement for steel. Newton's laws, widest application, because they're time unlimited, they're always true, and they will bite you if you think they're not true. And hand washing also came in. Um, it was a very medical thing, but it's time unlimited. I don't think they'll ever go back to not washing their hands, all right? At least I hope not. Uh, innovation system levels are paradigms of innova uh, uh, innovation of paradigms, where your mental model changes, position, changes in the context where you work, product innovation, changes in things, and process innovation, changes in creation and delivery. Because some people are now playing with the idea, what can we do with these quadrocopters, and how can we change delivery? Delivery of medicines, maybe a rare bottle of wine, although I wouldn't be too sure that's going to work. It'll get intercepted. Um, uh, you know, but, but things like uh, electric cars, driverless cars, and things like that. So, practical application. Let's, let's go to some, but I think I'm going to go through this. You can read it on the thing later. I am working on this. If you have the structures, nice. Here are the structures. Dunk, 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 dunk. And I built a model where I say, you must know, you must have an awareness of the time framework that you're living in. The business space, which is a three-dimensional space, which is a story of its own. A systems framework of what I call literacies. You can't just be an expert in one thing today. We're not insects. We are generalists as human beings. Because when you go home, you drive a car, you might have to change nappies or do anything else. We are not just engineers, um, we are integrators, and there's got to be system thinking. And all these things are applied in a way that is integrated but mushy, almost like an amoeba. An amoeba isn't a circle with a nucleus in the middle. An amoeba is a thing that can change its boundaries as it needs to, as it uh, requires. Um, and I developed a model that's too complicated now, but you can see I only took those three out of there. And there are lots of others that are all part of this bigger picture. Okay, this one is very simple. It is quite long there, but I'm going to stop now. It's about leadership. It's not that we don't make plans at all, but we manage paradox and risk. That's what you do. And a technical manager does that too. You manage paradox in the sense that you often have contradictory or equally good or bad solutions, and you've got to decide which one, all right? But they also monitor and mentor and coach. They definitely don't organize people too much. The one thing, and I'm, it's, it's not a Dr. Willem Barnard fan club, but he's probably the one guy that influenced me professionally the most. That guy never laid, um, what is lacels? that you put on a horse? Reins. Never put physical reins on you. You put them on yourself because you wanted to do this well. And if you make a mistake, you go there and it gets discussed and you have to solve the problem. There might be input for you, but in the end, it's your accountability, responsibility and authority to do something about it. But these guys prepare the organization or the team for change and they help them cope as they struggle through it. 
If followers only want stability and solutions from their leaders, that's like babysitting. Don't force your leader into babysitting you. Many people, and I've seen it at Kentron as I grew up in, in management responsibility, people abdicate and delegate upwards. And I didn't stand for that. I said, you get paid for that, and you make the decisions. If they, you can ask me any time, but if it goes wrong, I'll take the rap. If it goes right, you get all the glory. And I really mean that, because I avoided politics at all costs, because I'm a techno guy. I don't want all this other stuff. And real leaders ask hard questions and knock people out of their comfort zones, and then they manage the resulting stress. And I think I'm going to stop there, because I've got a lot of stuff there, um, I'm just going to jump to the end here because I've got just too much because I wanted to give you an example of what we do or what we did in the arms corps environment. But hang on, there's one more maybe. I, I, I switched too quickly. No, no, it's not that. Okay. I'm going to... One of the things that I think we really did right in those days was great system engi systems engineering implies there is expertise, obviously. There is also experience. At the beginning it's a bit thin, but you got mentors around you. If there is such a thing. It was in our days. You strive for excellence, but you don't get everything right. I've also got white elephants in my history, and I'm not scared to talk about them because the main thing is, and it says on one of the other slides, that in a learning culture, you're allowed to make a mistake as long as you learn something from it, and it wasn't aspirous on purpose, which would be really stupid. That would be sabotage, actually. Or if you did something really stupid, which you knew wouldn't work or cause damage. Experimentation errors, as I said. People development and opportunity always, always promoted, always promoted. And I see that overseas a lot more than I see it here. Experience is wide and deep. There are specialists and there are generalists, and the one isn't looking down on the other. Commitment to excellence, which is operationally driven in the end, but in the end it also shows in the result. When we had five out of five failures, in the launch of these anti-tank missiles, it was because the people didn't talk to each other. It's that simple and yet so profound in a way. Um, the operations didn't work. Encouragement to prototype, experiment, error to tolerance and quick learning, as I said already. And this is the other thing here. A culture of openness, trust, flexibility, professionalism, and listening to the client. And listening with such a way that you can actually find out what they mean, which is not always easy. My son is an architect, and he says when they meet clients the first time, it is difficult to extract out of their heads what exactly they want. It's quite difficult. And then you put something together for them, and you, depending on how well you listened, you get close to what they want. But it's very difficult. And I think in systems engineering, it's very much like that. And you need enormous energy. When you're young, it's easier. I would not maybe feel that energetic anymore, you know. And here we are. So think system, be innovative, and be an inspiring leader. At any level where you are, wherever you are. 
Um, I left out quite a bit on leadership, but that's a different thing. I knew when I put it together it was a bit too long. I apologize for overstaying my welcome, maybe. Um, but I hope it was still interesting. I see nobody slept and, and nobody is leaving. So I want to thank you very, very much for your time. And uh, I'm open for questions, but I probably don't know the answers. But we'll try anyway. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sure. They don't. I agree with that. Um, but the fact that they are successful in such short, short period of time, um, is it not that they have a very special way of handling risk that might come in with the leadership side? Because mm. if you don't have a process, how do you manage the risk? <sighs> I haven't been in his factories, okay? But I think they, they have a system. They definitely have a system. The closest I got to that... I had a Swiss company um, that had 30 young people, and by young I mean they were all under 35. They were all freelancers. They looked all weird in terms of metal in their faces and the bikes they drove, women and men. They were all Swiss, which was very, very unusual for me that they could be like that. And they had to build a service provider, a cell phone service provider from scratch, and there were already five in Switzerland. There are seven million people there. I don't know why they needed another one, but they did. It was called Diax. And they got 2,000 million Swiss francs to play with and get it going. They had no human resources. They had no anything. They just had 30 passionate, keen, brilliant people that did this thing together from scratch. And they burnt a lot of money. And when they spent about two-thirds of it, the guys in the pinstripe suits walked in and said, thank you very much. You've given us the basics of what we want. We're now going to refine it uh, with more routine type people, more uh, structured people. And they were so glad because the fun was already going out of them. They had put up everything that they wanted to do. And I think... What happens in those people's heads and in the teamwork? They work each other up to such a degree. If you read Elon Musk, when they do these rocket tests, it's on an island that I struggled to find in the Pacific um, on Google Earth. And when I found it, it's atolls, like a pearl of atolls. And they row from one island to the other until I said, no, there's no infrastructure. Send us sleeping bags. We sleep right here on the launch pad sort of thing, you know. And they do their things there. It's got a runway on one of these things. And uh, Elon Musk sends his jet there if they need a part. I mean, it's completely inefficient. But it is very effective what they are doing. That's the difference. Um, I'm very interested in Formula One. And when I look at the old Ferrari guys when Michael Schumacher was still there, they were highly effective. 
And the Germans were highly efficient. And who was always winning? You know? Um, now it's the other way around. But I think it's because the Germans have maybe now also learned to be effective because they got a guy like, uh, um, who's that Austrian again? Nicky Lauder there. Yeah. Anyway, long story. Um, I think there is something in those unstructured groups. It's like a glue that puts everything together. We are guys who were trained to tick boxes and say, hey, spec, is it complete? Do we have every paragraph there? And in this process, we forget the bigger picture. Now, we need it for contracting. For sure we need it. It's not a nice to have. It is necessary. But my whole point is, it's not sufficient. You need more than that. And the whole world needs more than that, in a way, in our relationships with, you know, and, and, and other industries. Um, I hope some of that came across. Because it's not just the engineering. I was very disappointed to discover that the world was bigger than engineering because I was one of those guys. I, I suppose when I was younger, maybe I was geeky. I don't know. But I just loved what I was doing. I loved it. And that made a difference too for me as an individual. I have no regret about anything I did. And, and uh, uh, what I mean technically now, okay? Um, there are other things I regret, sure, on a human level. But... Um, so we need those structures. I'm not advocating we don't do this. But that's not the whole thing. There's more to that. There's more to that. I, I don't know if that answers it really, but uh, anything, anybody else? So just twice so cool. the, um, you, you've mentioned the words facilitate and, and, um, and harmony. And this question as well, and um, met somebody who's, whose son is employed by Elon Musk, and, and this, this guy is a young engineer. He, he raves about how Elon Musk comes down to every single person and talks to them and interacts with them. Yeah. And, and that um, made me aware of this aspect of, of integration, of harmonizing, of cross-connecting mm. and keeping the thing whole. So the, the one aspect of systems engineering, of ticking the boxes and, and um, you know, getting the contracts right to the outside world, is one aspect of engineering, but the other one is internal harmonization, to make sure that at all mm. divisions, across divisions, in, across all levels inside of the organization, everybody knows what the game mm. is, what the bits are that need to be put together in the right way, talking. Absolutely. Together. And that is a fundamental thing. Now, we, we achieve something like that with system processes, mm. structured formal documents that we hand over and pass away. Without the explanation, without the integration, the harmonization, hmm. it falls flat. So we work with scientists, and they are unstructured. And they object to having structured processes both of them. And um, I, I found a reference of a system engineering group in a development laboratory in the 70s in the States, um, where in the preface, the, um, the chief system engineer explains systems engineering to the scientists. And he doesn't. It's a 14-page document. It's short. It just it's, it gives the principles. It explains to scientists without saying these are the processes. It says we are trying to achieve harmony. We are trying to cause this integration to happen. Mm. And if I explain that to, to, to scientists, they buy into the process. Yes. If I explain to them that we have these documents that we produce, and we sign up this, and we have these reviews, they go blank. They object. So my thesis is that 
um, system engineering works, and I, I buy your, take your point that Elon Musk is a great system engineer because he creates that holistic yes. bit. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think he's not necessarily a nice guy. Uh, you know, what, what you read about people like him <laughs> and Steve Jobs, they are tough guys. Um, uh, one of those guys that I met, not these two, um, where they said of him, the softest part on his body are his teeth. <laughs> you know, they are tough. They know exactly what they want. And there's that story, maybe you heard it of Steve Jobs, who when the first iPod came about, and, and he said, make them smaller, make them smaller. And the engineers were desperate, and they said, this is now the very, very smallest we can make it. And... Uh, he looked at this thing and they explained and he said, so this is the smallest you can make. And he dropped it into the aquarium and it was a working prototype. And there came air bubbles out of it. And he said, guys, there's still air in there. Go and make it smaller, as I said. You know, maybe it's anecdotal, maybe it really happened. I don't know. But it's that sort of mindset that these people have. They don't take good enough for an answer. It's just not there. But they're on the ball. They are everywhere. And knowing your people. Look, I don't know how many hundreds of people he's got. But I know, I knew my 420 people at Kentron. I even knew their birthdays. Now, don't think I knew them off by heart. But every month I knew them off by heart. Because my secretary had the task to make a list every month of next month's birthdays. And I would either go to that person or send them a handwritten little note from my desk, from the desk of Dietmar Vinska, even had stationery made like that. And in their language, I did that. Now, that's a little thing. It took me, sure, that looks as if, it took me 20 minutes, maybe per month, to write these little notes. But what an effect it had on the people. It was completely um, out of context, you know, in the effect that it had. Um, we always knew who had a baby and stuff like that because secretaries are very good gatekeepers. They know these things. So I told her, I want to know them too. Why? Because I want to congratulate people or whatever, you know. And going down into the factory, I think it was a guy like Tom Peters, who you either love or hate. He's also from the 70s and 80s. Um, but he said once, they discovered a new management uh, uh, tool. It's called talking to each other. And, and uh, he made a lot of boo-ha out of that one. But it was true. Because on every Monday after my little meeting, where there was real filter coffee, and I introduced the first filter coffee machine in my department, I went down there and I met every one of my people. I didn't speak to everyone at length, but I met them all, you know. And eating in the canteen, in the ordinary canteen. Because at Armscore days... There were special canteens for all sorts of manager levels, you know. And I'm a guy who is not actually comfortable there. Just sometimes, as I got older in the hierarchy, more senior, I went there because I always heard the real stuff there, you know. But the canteen was a nicer place. You met nicer people, actually, most of the time. Um, yeah, it's, it's an exciting world, actually, that we're living in. You can do it on the computer now. You say you've got software for that. That's fine. There is a tool for these things, but it's another box you've got to tick, right? Uh, and it's more than ticking the boxes. So thank you for your patience again, for listening to me for so long. <laughs>